Hello and welcome to Rurik Primary Review, where we cover the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy, and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leveraged finance, direct lending, high yield bonds, high yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, Rurik's municipal reporter Hua Huan speaks with Robert Turner and Eric Swanson of Kaufman Hall and discuss the financial performance of U.S. hospitals coming out of the pandemic, how performance compares to pre-pandemic levels, and recent healthcare borrowing trends. And as always, our weekly coverage and a preview of what's coming next week. Also, we'd like to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience. So please take a moment to complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. It's Monday, July 17th. Welcome back to another episode of the Reorg Primary View podcast. I'm Huang Nguyen, a reporter on the Municipals team, and I'm pleased to have two experts from Kaufman Hall with me this morning. Robert Turner, Managing Director and Practice Leader of Treasury and Capital Markets, and Eric Swanson, Senior Vice President of Data and Analytics. Welcome, Robert and Eric. We're very much delighted to have you on our podcast today. Well, thank you so much for, for having us, Wa. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. Great. So a little bit about our guests before we begin. Uh, Robert leads Kaufman Hall's Treasury and Capital Markets practice, where he advises healthcare leaders nationwide on topics such as credit and capital management and treasury platform merger integration. Robert's expertise includes finance development for public and private taxable and tax exam financings, as well as debt and swap restructurings. Our second guest, Eric, leads Kaufman Hall's data and analytics group, where he focuses on building data science tools to provide insight and develop guidance to help healthcare organizations achieve meaningful outcomes. Eric currently publishes the National Hospital Flash Report, and he regularly speaks to healthcare associations and boards. On today's podcast, we're going to discuss the current states of hospitals around the country, as well as healthcare borrowing trends as we're headed into the second half of the year. So to kick off our conversation, um, perhaps it would be a great question for Eric. Um, what is the current state of hospitals now that the second quarter has come to a close? And how are you seeing these numbers faring compared to pre-pandemic levels? Well, well, thank you, Juan. I think it's it's certainly timely to be talking about the performance of hospitals now. And, and maybe as I lead into how hospitals are faring today, I can provide a little bit of historical context on where they've been throughout the course of the last three years. So starting in around March of 2020, we began to see the early impacts of, of COVID and the pandemic hit hospitals across the United States quite heavily. And unfortunately in that month, hospitals recorded one of the worst performing months that they have since the beginning of, of recording hospital performance. Since that point, we saw uh, performance improve slightly over the course of 2020 in large part due to the stimulus funds that were provided through the CARES Act, uh, and other uh, stimulus programs. 2021 continued to see some foundational improvement in hospital operations. Uh, and again, with that support of the stimulus funds, we saw hospitals do relatively well in the course of 2021. Unfortunately, in 2022, that began with the Omicron surge, and we again saw a large uh, detrimental impact on, on hospitals nationwide. And by that point, much of those stimulus funds no longer existed. And so hospitals worked to climb themselves out of a hole throughout the course of 2022, 
leading it to actually be the worst year since the beginning of the pandemic. Well, this leads us into 2023 now. And so what we found is that those trends have continued and organizations continue to be improving uh, from last year. However, generally, uh, from a profitability perspective, it, it remains well below that of pre-pandemic levels, uh, with most organizations uh, right around break even at the moment, maybe slightly above. Um, and unfortunately, not anywhere near those pre-pandemic levels of performance around three, three and a half percent of of operating margin. I see. So you're so you're saying that um, when the pandemic first hit, um, the hospitals receive a lot of stimulus funds, but now those funds are kind of running out, and now it's it's like the profitability is definitely decreasing because of the lack of those funds. That, that's absolutely correct. And, and there are a few other fundamental components that are leading to this decreased or diminished performance relative to pre-pandemic levels. So number one, what I'll just note is that uh, hospitals are now existing in an environment with highly elevated expenses. And this is frankly across the board. This is elevated labor expenses, elevated non-labor expenses. Uh, as Robert may, may later talk about, even the cost of, of acquiring capital has, has increased. So although volumes, in the most recent months have begun to return to some degree, and that has helped organizations somewhat move to be break even or slightly above. Unfortunately, with each additional uh, volume patient day discharge comes these highly elevated expenses, which again are challenging organizations uh, across the board. Got you. So from my reporting of um, different healthcare systems across the country, um, I've seen that Kaufman Hall has engaged with a lot of hospitals to come up with recommendations um, that would help them recover from a lot of operating losses and cash burn. Uh, what are some common threads that have come up repeatedly across those suggestions? Yeah, may maybe I'll break this into four main categories, if we will. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so the first is we, we think somewhat about uh, expense and labor expense in particular. So as I noted, labor expenses remain highly elevated. And unfortunately, one of the drivers of this uh, for organizations is the increased utilization of contract labor. So contract labor, staffing agencies, uh, travel nurses, uh, very often as individuals have, have heard about, um, have, have challenged uh, the, the expense on the labor side for many organizations. So to address that, one of the areas in which uh, organizations are investing is an area in which we call workforce optimization. And what it really is, is organizations adopting uh, technology and other types of predictive systems to help determine how best to deploy the workforce and staff they have uh, today, and looking forward to see what kind of workforce and staff they might need uh, to address those, those patient demands. So that's, that's number one, a technological angle. Um, I actually have like a small follow-up uh, from that. So do hospitals um, run into like staff retention issues at all? Like, are they losing staff as well as like trying to recruit new staff? Yes, un unfortunately, uh, uh, that all of those are true. So, so staff retention, staff turnover, rather, uh, has unfortunately increased over the last few years. So, so staff turnover remains high. Further, 
uh, one of the metrics we track in our report, which, which is FTEs per AOB. And what that stands for is the number of full-time equivalent individuals working per every average occupied bed. So for every bed in which there's a patient sitting, those numbers unfortunately remain quite down. So when you take those two together, what, what that tells us is that we're in an environment whereby turnover is high. And we could talk about all the reasons why turnover is high. And unfortunately, there is also a shortage of, of supply of, of new nurses, caregivers, other individuals entering the market that have also led to, to some challenges on the recruitment uh, side as well. Now, may, maybe as a segue to that, that, that actually leads me to a few other uh, 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 areas in which hospitals are trying to address some of these labor expense uh, issues. So one is creating pathways and partnerships with institutional organizations. So some organizations, some hospitals are, are figuring out how do they partner with uh, nursing schools, uh, colleges, universities, so that they can create that pipeline of, of new individuals and candidates that may join uh, their hospitals. So that's certainly one. And then from a recruitment perspective, uh, organizations are also thinking about how do we evaluate skill mix, so the type of, of individuals we are bringing in and ensuring that all of the staff we bring in is working to the top of their a license or ability, but also evaluating wage rates and, and thinking how do, how do we remain very competitive in the market today amongst our peers and, and other competitors, uh, but doing so at, at a level at which um, they are not also having to spend the exorbitant amounts on, on contract labor. So there's a, a few from the labor expense perspective. Gotcha. Maybe to transition in, into three other areas, and I'll keep them relatively brief. So, so next is non-labor. So as we think about non-labor, so a, a lot of area uh, and of focus here is on reducing vendor spread and being able to use uh, scale or leverage any scale for purchasing and procurement. So ensuring that that an organization is procuring from a smaller list of vendors by whereby they have a little bit more power to perhaps uh, negotiate better pricing is, is certainly one of the areas. Second, organizations are rethinking, re-evaluating re their supply chain management processes uh, to ensure that is the most efficient onboarding of, of potentially new vendors and, and acquiring those, those goods that they need. And last but not least, what I would say is, given how expensive labor is at the moment, organizations are also thinking about, well, what do we do in-house versus what is outsourced that we might potentially buy from an external vendor? And this is particularly true when we talk about shared services or, or what is colloquially called overhead uh, within these organizations. So those back office type functions. And again, that's another area in which organizations are, are uh, pressing on to, to uh, tackle some of these non-labor uh, challenges. Gotcha. So it's officially July now. Um, what averse trends do you expect to persist for, for these hospitals? And um, which ones might peter out during the second half of this year? Well, maybe I'll, I'll start here and then can turn it over to Robert for, for some additional context and color. So one, as I noted, I think we should uh, be expecting and organizations are expecting continued increased expenses. Now, as, as I just noted, um, as organizations are tackling the, the use of contract labor, we are beginning to see both the rates that contract labor and staffing agencies are able to command and the utilization that, that organizations rely on that beginning to decrease. So that is attenuating some of those labor pressures. However, they still remain far more expensive in general uh, from, from pre-pandemic levels. 
Some other notable trends that, that we expect to see persist here is one is we should continue to see some normal patterns of volume begin to return to hospitals. So we're starting to see patients resume their normal courses of care. The, the types of patients coming in is becoming more normal or, or relative to even pre-pandemic levels. And, and importantly, an area of a lot of activity is in the outpatient setting. And so we continue to see uh, rapid growth, uh, far outpacing growth in inpatient areas in the outpatient sites of care. So ambulatory surgery centers, urgent care clinics, um, those types of setting, physician um, uh, clinics as well that all feed into the hospital, um, uh, all feed into the hospital volume. So we should continue to expect those uh, to occur. However, that also means that we should expect that that outpatient setting is going to remain a highly competitive, highly competitive uh, space. And taken together, and, and, and then might be a nice segue to Robert, as we think about these operational challenges, some of the, the elevated expense load, reduced profitability, that will ultimately for many organizations, not all, but many, uh, mm -hmm. will cause some, some challenges and some drain potentially on, on capital and some of their liquidity, some of their balance sheet metrics. And so we may still continue to expect an increase in, in debt covenant violations uh, and other challenges that, that organizations may face. But luckily, these are at least a little bit better than we saw in, in last year. However, still certainly not at, at uh, pre-pandemic levels of performance. Right. Uh, would you like to add anything to um, Eric's answer, Robert? Yeah, I would. I, I, I think, you know, our perspective is that the balance sheet really needs to provide a bridge for, for, for these providers to a point in time in the future when, you know, the myriad of challenges that they're facing have begun to resolve. And I, I think maybe we're seeing a little bit of, of, you know, turn in the right direction, but there's so many challenges facing organizations and, and candidly so few controllables uh, that, that, you know, historically uh, our clients have had, you know, very strong, stable balance sheets. I think there's, there's a lot of pressure right now on, on organizations. If you, if you sort of rewind the tape, you know, two and three years, back, uh, a lot of clients borrowed uh, forward, right? They, they sort of added leverage, taxable and tax exempt uh, rates were very attractive and clients sort of stocked up on, on, you know, capital. And I think they have been relying on that to fund, you know, key strategic uh, needs and, and, a, and to bridge, um, you know, operations. Uh, and, and now I think we're getting to a point in time where, uh, borrowing is, you know, obviously curtailed, right? You, you see all the issuance statistics supporting much lower levels um, last year and now into this year. And I guess, you know, the question will be whether at some point clients begin to access external capital sources again. I think it's hard to, you know, it's hard for clients to think about how to borrow uh, in an environment when they're losing money, right? No one, no one knows quite how to do that. And yet at the same time, they still have compelling strategic opportunities to pursue. They still have, you know, enormous capital needs. And so we see clients wrestling with this. Uh, I think to that end, we see uh, clients evaluating their balance sheets very carefully and, and looking at, um, at every angle. So uh, on the debt side, you know, um, do, do you need to go ahead and issue uh, new debt uh, to fund capital needs? Uh, or bolster liquidity. Uh, you know, I think we see clients looking at public and private market alternatives, both mm -hmm. um, in, in essence, because they're, you know, private market alternatives 
are are increasingly efficient and and you know have you know a, a less uh, a lesser degree of disclosure you know requirements at, at the time of issuance and so that that candidly has some level of attractiveness attractiveness for our client um I think we also see clients evaluating their real estate holdings candidly as, as sort of an, an area uh, of opportunity. Uh, you know, clients have historically amassed sort of, you know, substantial real estate holdings and, and sort of bank land or, or property, uh, you know, with the expectation that at some point in the future that'll become, you know, important. Uh, I think there's a, a new, you know, a, there, there's a new desire to look at that with a fresh set of eyes and we see clients, you know, looking at whether they they need to sort of divest some of those things. Um, and I think we see clients looking very carefully at, at how they're managing liquidity and and how their investment portfolios are, are positioned. Um, you know, uh, last year investment returns were were altogether uh, uncooperative and and we see that, you know, I think um, you know this year's been better so far this you know year to date, but um, but I think everyone is curious as to whether the the sort of you know market returns you, you're getting from your investment portfolio are going to be uh, sustainable. I think there's you know good and healthy debate about whether that's that's realistic to rely upon. So I, I'd say from a balance sheet perspective, we're seeing a lot uh, of of wrestling with these issues. I think um, there's there's a, a general understanding that the, the operating challenges will persist for some time. And and until that you know improves, there's, there will be a need to to rely on the balance sheet. And so I, I, we see clients looking very carefully at, at how to maintain the strength of the balance sheet, um, stave off you know deterioration where they can, and and in fact bolster liquidity if possible. Yeah. So speaking of capital needs and um, you know looking for additional liquidity. What is your outlook for hospitals looking to tap the municipal market in the next six months, if at all? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I'd say we see maybe the green shoots uh, of of some interest in accessing markets again. Um, I, I'll tell you, it's it's somewhat an anecdotal. Uh, we we see more clients asking us about you know debt capacity. Um, we see more clients asking us about market updates and the like. I'd say we you know we're at a point in time now that it's July, where if you're going to start uh, you know a transaction for the fall, it's now's the time to get started. So we we are seeing some of that, um, and and I think you know that's that's maybe consistent with what Eric's um, you know reporting would tell you about the flash report like right so if you if you think about some mild improvement in operating performance okay maybe maybe people can begin to imagine a scenario where where uh, you know accessing capital markets does make sense again um how do you see um these new issuances be affected by more uh, macro trends like the treasuries the 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 rate heights from the fed like things like that sure i well i think you know i think clients are, are are in for a little bit of a rude awakening they haven't you know a lot of them haven't borrowed money since the the 10-year treasury was you know very much lower than it is today and i think uh as as we're talking with clients about interest rates they generally understand that they're higher i think you know as we start to dust off that that conversation about your new cost of borrowing yeah, it's higher for sure. I, you know, at the same time, I'll tell you that you know the strategic investment opportunities that our clients have generate you know the returns 
that that start you know ought to beat that cost of capital regardless right whether you can borrow at three four or five percent you know it, you know it ought not to be that close right in terms of a you know sort of a PV analysis as to whether to proceed with those those um, strategic initiatives. I think in particular, since you've seen a curtailment of, of strategic investment, uh, I think, you know, clients are sort of starved for capital. And, and I think the opportunities that they can pursue, you know, ought, ought to generate returns. So, uh, you know, is this going to, you know, or is this going to fail because interest rates are higher? No, I, I don't think it, that, that that's the case. I think that, you know, clients have, have you know, have borrowed at these levels and, and, you know, candidly higher levels in the past. And, and I don't think that will prevent them um, by itself from proceeding. Awesome. Yeah. I, I think that's the perfect wrapped up for our conversation today. Um, thank you again, Eric and Robert for participating and sharing with us your insights today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Yeah. Thank you so much. For in-court coverage, we take a look at SBP Financial Group, Associates Network, FTX Group, Tybull, Nixdorf, Purdue Pharma, and Mallinckrodt. SBP Financial Group filed an adversary suit against a Federal Deposit Insurance Corp, both in its corporate capacity and in its capacity as receiver for Silicon Valley Bank and Silicon Valley Bridge Bank. SBP Financial Group seeks to recover approximately $1.93 billion of account funds that it accuses the FDIC of wrongfully withholding plus interest. After the Department of Justice, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission each filed complaints against Celsius Network and former CEO Alex Mashinsky, the defendants announced they have settled with all three government plaintiffs. The suits accused Celsius and Mashinsky of fraud and misleading the public into buying Celsius as CEL token at inflated prices. Settlements are not expected to affect Celsius's Chapter 11 plan or customer recoveries, the debtor said in a press release. Under the FTC settlement, FTC will assert a $4.7 billion fine against Celsius Estates, but the fine will be suspended. The FTX Group debtors filed a fraudulent transfer suit against Patrick Gunn and Robert Muskie, co-founders of Swiss company Digital Assets DAAG, or DAAG, and their affiliates. The, company, the complaint alleges FTX insiders used $376 million in misappropriated funds from FTX Group to acquire DAAG at a nearly $400 million valuation, even though DAAG had limited business and no intellectual property beyond a business plan. Judge David R. Jones confirmed Diebold Nixdorf's Chapter 11 plan at an uncontested hearing last week. The judge also approved Diebold's $1.25 billion dip on a final basis and signed an order granting Chapter 15 recognition of the Dutch scheme proceeding of Diebold Nixdorf Dutch Holding BV. The U.S. trustee asked the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit to stay its decision upholding non-debtor releases in Purdue Pharma's plan, pending the UST's petition for review of the ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court. The UST says the U.S. Solicitor General, which represents the federal government in the Supreme Court, has approved a petition for cert to be filed by the August 28th deadline. Shareholders filed a class action suit against Mallinckrodt, alleging the company made false or misleading statements about its financial condition after emerging from bankruptcy in June 2022. Recent reports that the company may file for bankruptcy again have caused a precipitous decline in the market value of the company's securities, the plaintiffs say. Lumen Technologies, Air Methods, Belk, and Excel Technologies ran off this week's list of potential restructurings. There's market chatter that Lumen subsidiary Level 3 sale of its Latin American business in August 2022 and its subsequent use of proceeds to pay down unsecured debt caused an event of default. 
Rearg's investigation of the company's credit agreement highlights a provision in the credit agreement that requires Level 3 to put net proceeds over $1 billion from an asset sale of collateral into a deposit account in which the collateral agent has a perfected security interest. Because the collateral requirement for the Level 3 term loan states that foreign subsidiaries are not required to become guarantors or create liens in their assets, the assumption is that the LATAM assets were not collateral and that this provision does not apply. The lack of a similar provision for non-collateral assets may be a point in the company's favor. Some credit agreements ex explicitly state that pending the final application of asset sale proceeds, the borrower can use such proceeds for any allowable purpose. The presence of this language in a Level 3 credit agreement would be decisive. Its absence could arguably be a point in favor of the default calling lenders. Air Methods is considering its options, including a likely restructuring before its $1.39 billion facility matures in April 2024. Certain lenders have signed non-disclosure agreements to negotiate with the provider of emergency air medical services, according to sources. The company is advised by Wild Gottschall and Lazard, and an ad hoc group of lenders is working with Davis Polk and Evercore. Belk is also evaluating options for its balance sheet, which includes an out-of-court restructuring. A potential transaction would equitize some junior pieces of debt while amending and extending senior debt, sources familiar with the matter have said. Lenders to the North Carolina-based department store chain are working with Paul Weiss as legal advisor and Evercore as financial advisor. Excella completed its exchange of 2026 notes, reporting that 98% of old 2026 tendered for new notes. The company also repaid its outstanding 2023 note and loan maturities. Top red stories this week included SES Intelsat claimed disallowance reversed, Aero advocates for freedom of estimation, LTL's frustration of purpose problem. Aldrich Pump ACC urges court to dismiss Texas two-step cases as misuse of bankruptcy system in violation of constitutional limits of bankruptcy clause. 17 debtors file in U.S. amid mixed economic data. Investors pitch competing plans to restructure France's casino. Sino-Ocean notes tumble on restructuring fears as companies working group engages CICC for due diligence. Identifying permissible double-dip financing opportunities and current debt agreements. Kate Thomas is out this week, so I'll be covering the week ahead from Forest Hills, Queens. On Monday, National Cinemedia will be in court to oppose AMC and Cinemark's bid to obtain a stay pending their appeals to the debtor's confirmation order and settlement order, approving a new screen advertising contract with Cineworld Group debtor Regal Cinemas. National Cinemedia says a stay would derail its restructuring transactions and would carry no less than $461 million in damages. Lucky Bucks will also be in court on Monday for a second-day hearing. Debtors will seek final approval of an $82 million OPCO DIP facility provided by pre-petition OPCO first lien claim holders. Interim DIP approval authorized the OPCO debtors to access $14.5 million in new money and a roll-up of $43.5 million. Also slated for hearing on Monday is the Diamond Sports Group debtors' motion to reject the Arizona Diamondbacks telecast rights agreement. Major League Baseball and DirecTV do not object to the rejection, but ask that the court clarify the effect of rejection with respect to continued broadcasting of Diamondbacks content by distributors, including when content is delivered by non-debtor third parties. On Tuesday, the Celsius Network's debtor will seek approval of a $25 million cash settlement with Series B preferred holders and the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors. On Wednesday, the Venator Materials debtors will be seeking confirmation of their plan of reorganization. The plan faces opposition from several parties, including minority shareholder Huntsman Corp., over the plan's feasibility in light of a developing dispute with the debtors regarding a $20 million lien general unsecured claim relating to NOL sharing. Minority shareholder JNT MS1 CCAV AS also objected to the plan, arguing that it grossly undervalues the debtors' business. 
Also up on Wednesday is the Genesis Care debtor's final dip motion and, re and requested bidding procedures for their U.S. assets. The $800 million dip financing consisting of $200 million in new money and a $600 million roll-up of senior lending facilities is fully backstopped by an ad hoc term lender group. The bidding procedures, if approved, would allow the debtors to continue their pre-petition marketing efforts for the U.S. assets in a more comprehensive way, including selecting a stocking horse bidder for one or more asset packages. Under interim dip approval, which enabled the debtors to access $90 million in new money, a sale to U.S. assets must close by October 24th. The Endo International debtors will be in court Wednesday asking for authority to undertake an internal reorganization to facilitate the sale of their Indian affiliates to Stocking Horse Credited by or Tensor Limited, an entity controlled by the First Lien Lenders. Under the contemplated reorganization, a new debtor affiliate, Endo India Holdings, would directly acquire equity interests in the Indian affiliates from Par Pharmaceuticals, Inc. prior to the sale, such that the debtor, rather than the buyer, would be required to secure foreign direct investment approval from the Indian government. Bittrex debtors are also set to be in court on Wednesday on their motion to estimate all contingent liquidated claims of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, which the SEC opposes. Thank you again for tuning in to the REARC Primary Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the REARC.com webinar and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great week. See you next Monday.